0: As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT Cares Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the OLLI at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of OLLI at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu or send us an email at, O-L-L-I at unt.edu. Now, let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member, Susan Supak.
1: This is Susan Supack speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Craig Newman, professor of clinical psychology and distinguished research professor at the University of North Texas. Dr. Newman is an internationally renowned research scientist with expertise on the psychopathic personality and sophisticated statistical techniques. Dr. Newman is also an OLLI faculty member, sharing his expertise and knowledge on various psychological topics, and has recently recorded a lecture for us entitled, How to Cope in the Days of Coronavirus, on how to use mindfulness to be more resilient in these stressful days of the coronavirus pandemic. You can watch Dr. Newman's video on the OLLI at UNT homepage, and that's at ollie.unt.edu. There is also a link to the video in the description for this episode. Welcome back, Dr. Newman.
2: It's wonderful to be here, Susan. Thank you for inviting me.
1: It's great to talk to you again. As I understand it, there is an inverse link between stress and our immune system, an important factor in these certainly stressful times. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship?
2: Certainly, this relationship between our stress response system and our immune system, this is what motivated me in part to think about putting together the mindfulness video and and speaking with you today. All of us, I think, it's just wonderful to see people pulling together, young people volunteering to deliver groceries for older people. So. I was just thinking how can i help i said well i I know a lot i've I've studied a lot i've learned a lot of things and one of the things i thought i could talk about is for people to have a good understanding of the relationship between stress and the immune system and and that is that we can't have both of these major systems going at the same time and so when we're undergoing some situation challenging situation that is pressing us challenging us in some fashion Thinking about how what's happening in today's world, I wanted to share this relationship between the stress response system and the immune system. And so when we have significant challenges, our body gets activated, gets ready to meet these challenges under stressful times like we're dealing with now. But what that means though, is that our immune system can't be active at the same time. And so there's some suppression of immune system function. But it could also be during the time of influenza or coronavirus, we also need the immune system to be active, to help us fight various things floating in the air. And so the idea, I think, is to try and, uh, you can't eliminate stress, you can't eliminate a stress response, you can't just simply tell your immune system when to turn on and turn off. These are uh, homeostatic systems. And so I think one way we can think about this is, if we can modulate, try and respond to the challenges of life in a way where our stress response system isn't, in a sense, overactivated or overcharged, or we're not feeling completely incapacitated, if we can manage the way we face the world to try and The challenges come, we get activated, there's some stress, but try and modulate that stress to some degree. That might then help us to also then allow the immune system to also be active when it's needed. And so how we face stressful situations depends on how extreme those situations affect us. If we face stressful situations with more resilience a more adaptive capacity to meet the demand, that then means that we feel overall less stressed and it allows potentially, if needed, our immune system to also then activate and do what it does, seek out foreign invaders and antigens, a strong immune response to help fight off viruses. And so we have to think about life comes at us, it challenges us, How do we meet those challenges in a way that is more versus less adaptive? So if we can minimize the stress response to some degree, manage the stress response in a more healthful way, that then can make, hopefully, our immune system more readily available to do what it does.
1: So as I understand it, our natural stress response that we really can't help having, it's there, it's to help us, it's to protect us, also has the consequence of lowering our immune system. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. One can't be active at the same time as the other. Both are very heavy resource demanding. And so nature's designed us to fight uh, or to flee, to run, to protect ourselves first. And then after we've dealt with the stressor in some fashion, then if needed, if we're wounded or injured or, or, or sick, after we've dealt with the stressor, then to potentially upregulate the immune system. It's an inverse relationship. One can't be active at the same time the other is. You could think of it, this is an analogy, I don't know how well it works, but you could think about it like the way your muscles work. You cannot contract both your biceps and your triceps at the same time because you would actually break your arm. And so when you're lifting something, curling something up using your bicep, your triceps have to be relaxed and not active. So it's somewhat similar to that, these two systems, the stress and immune response system.
1: Okay, so two good systems, but we don't want one to override the other, or we don't want the stress to override our ability to have a functioning beneficial immune system so how do we manage that? How do we develop the resilience to be able to do that?
2: Whenever we're feeling stress, that comes from that there's some adjustive demands, something being required of us. It could be some environmental press, the temperature is too warm in the environment, or it could be some psychological stress that the boss wants the report done a week sooner than you had planned. What stress comes about from is that press, that demand, that adjust of demand, we feel to some extent that it is exceeding our capacity to cope with that demand or that we may, may not be incapable of meeting the demand, but we're going to have to do something. We're going to have to adjust in some fashion to meet the demand. And so how we perceive that stressor, that thing in the environment, that press, that environmental or psychological press. How we look at that in terms of our ability to meet the demands is what will determine whether we have an exaggerated, sort of prolonged stress response or whether we will be able to adaptively not only alter our behavior to meet that stress response, but also then once we have a felt sense, I can cope. So the boss says he wants the report a week earlier and you think oh my goodness i didn't plan for this but once you come up with some plans how i do this which may involve working now on saturday and sunday for example once you come up with those plans and you feel that you can't cope with that demand that felt sense that okay i have a strategy to cope that will then downregulate that stress response system and so it's a matter of what are the best ways to adapt in some cases again to stick with the The example of the early report, you know, in some cases, it might be that you rely on a colleague who's going to help you with some of the resources needed to complete a report. In other cases, it might be allocating more time that you can open up. In other cases, it might be psychologically telling yourself just that, okay, this is not easy, but I trust in myself to find a way forward. So it's a lot of different ways that we might carry out an adjustive response to some stressor. And to the extent that those responses that we identify and engage in can help things go better or worse.
1: This sounds like something that is so very important to our psychological well-being. Is the magnitude of this effect only beneficial psychologically, or does it also have a positive biological component?
2: A lot of what I've been talking about is how to be resilient. And your question is a really good one because Different stressors, things from the environment, different interpersonal demands, this situation now we're under a lockdown, being sort of shut up in the house. There's going to be different kinds of stressors. And so we have to come up with different ways of meeting these challenges. But yes, you know, your question is really good because it's not only psychologically and behaviorally how we respond to these challenges, but what's really important is that these stressors, and when the stress response system is activated, that has a biological effect. And in fact, the the more stressors we have in our life, the more there's also a biological press on our system, the activation of the stress response system, more higher output usage of our muscles, more extended concentration, mental concentration. All of these adjustive demands are going to have a biological effect on us. And technically, that's called an allostatic load. So the more stressors, the more of a load will be placed on us, not just psychologically, but also biologically. And so, again, the better we can meet the demands of these situations with a more resilient coping strategy, relying on social support, relying on new methods of doing things, The more we can not only have a better sense of psychologically, our our sort of a relief a sense that I can cope with the situation, but also then that will help us biologically in terms of reducing that allostatic load, that sheer volume of biological response to a given stressor.
1: So Dr. Newman, you touched on resilience strategies and how you mentioned how people cope with this. How does an individual then develop resilience strategies? Can you expand on that?
2: It's really important to first and foremost understand that resilience isn't something that necessarily you have or don't have. And so as your question suggests, resilience is something that can be built up. Resilience isn't just one thing. It's not necessarily biological hardiness, and it's not necessarily, say, psychological hardiness. Resilience has multiple components to it. Being in social situations, family and other social situations that are cohesive and harmonious. Again, think about we're not only psychological creatures, but we're biological creatures. And think about being in an environment where someone's playing the music too loud or someone's angry and shouting at you. Just Not only does that have an effect on you psychologically, but that that has an effect on you biologically. Increases your heart rate, might increase some stress response, uh, stress hormone, cortisol. So the opposite of that disharmonious type of environment, putting yourself in environments that are more conducive to loving, genuine, emotionally harmonious environments, that helps us to be more resilient. And in particular, when we have challenges in life, like this report that I keep coming back to that you have to get done, maybe it's because I have a lot of reports to do these days <laughs> in my life, that cohesive family isn't necessarily going to be doing the report for me. But on the other hand, knowing that I'm embedded in a loving and a caring environment, that sense of support also will help me meet my own individual demands so that's one important component is the people you surround yourself with helps us to be more or less resilient social support in itself people who can help you some people it's wonderful as i said at the beginning is these young people going out and shopping for older adults who are at greater risk of coronavirus and so being able to tap onto social support that that literally someone can carry out some activity that can be helpful to you But the other thing about social support is it's not just that objective type of resources. Someone will actually do some shopping for you, but also the subjective sense that if I needed some help, there are these people who could help me. Imagine again, that subjective sense of, I know there's people I can count on. That also helps us feel that we can cope with a given situation. Also, how we structure our environment. More regularity in our sleep rather than less regularity helps us psychologically and biologically to be more resilient. Our body tends to be on a 24-hour circadian rhythm. The heat in our body tends to go down or temperature, body temperature tends to go down in the evening. Our internal physiological processes start to quiet and we sleep through the night, but then through the morning there's now a rise in our body temperature a rise in these physiological activities everything to keep us healthy and alive and so having a regular sleep schedule maintains that circadian rhythmicity which helps us to be more resilient biologically as well as psychologically regularity in one's diet regularity in one's day-to-day routine that personal structure is very important for helping us to be more resilient And then at the individual level, and this is, I I don't want to minimize the importance of cohesive family environments and social support and a well-structured type of personal environment. Don't want to minimize those, but also very important is this, what is sometimes referred to as personal competence, the belief in your sense that no matter what happens, I can cope, that... I may not know what's happening, and certainly in these current days, there's a lot of uncertainty. And uncertainty is not a pleasant experience for anyone. But if you can also put in place that no matter what happens, and and I don't really know exactly what's going to happen, I'll find a way to cope. I trust in my ability to cope. That felt sense that I can cope with a given situation is very, very important for managing your response to stress Also, as you manage that response to stress, it upregulates the ability of the immune system if it's needed. It's more than putting on a pair of rose-colored glasses and saying, oh, everything will be okay, right? There's nothing wrong with optimism, but what I'm trying to convey here is that a belief in yourself that no matter what's needed, I believe that I can meet the challenges. That also then helps us to be more psychologically and biologically resilient
1: based on that, based on the importance of the awareness that I can cope, I can find a way out of whatever situation I'm in, I see that perhaps there's a great possibility for growth, community growth and personal growth in this difficult time of the coronavirus. With, for example, the young people that you mentioned that are delivering groceries, I know people can mention all kinds of things that they have found in this time where they have really positive aspects of these dark times, not to minimize the difficulty, but there have been some real lights in this darkness.
2: You really hit the nail on the head there, Susan, because when we're stressed, when our life is disrupted, in many cases, we can't rely on routine. Now, I talked about personal structure, but let's say we put in an order to the grocery store and none of our favorite food items are there. What do we do? Uh, Well, hmm. I've heard about these Indian stews. I've never tried one of those and I I hear that these Indian stews are full of wonderful vegetables and curry and tamarick. And I've heard that tamarick is very good for you. So when we're stressed and we come up with potentially a new strategy, a new way of doing things that we haven't thought about, haven't considered, they can lead to some profound new, not only insights, but new strategies for coping, new capabilities. And in addition to trying out new behavioral strategies, new options to replace some things that we may have lost, the other thing that comes along with that is a sense that even if your old way of doing things has been really disrupted, you might find that the challenge that you met leads to some real important self, a new sense of self-understanding that, hey, surprised myself. I came up with something I never thought I would be able to do that. And from that can come a sense of a greater sense of emotional resilience that I'm actually more capable than I was giving myself credit for. And that type of psychological growth could be very, very helpful then for coping for other challenging situations down the line. In a way, we can see this as sort of a we we reach potentially a new high water mark in terms of our felt sense of capacity to cope with situations. So we can replace the things we lose sometimes in terms of new strategies, new ways of doing things, but also we can replace potentially an old way of thinking about ourselves with a new, a deeper understanding of our own personal capacities. We may find surprising, but hopefully very much welcome that. I've learned more about myself. I've learned more about my ability and my emotional capacity to cope.
1: Well, that's very encouraging because it sounds like this dealing with the losses that we've been dealing with, dealing with the restrictions that have been put in place, they challenge us. And through that, it sounds like we can replace the loss with other things that can help us, as you say, further on down the road, maybe develop new interest and greater levels of competency. I would imagine that this age of technology, Technology allowing us to take online classes and connect socially via web programs and texting with each other, they must play an important part in the social aspect that you mentioned in resilience, but also in our ability to replace some of the frustrating losses that we find right now.
2: You hear stories now of these virtual dance parties and virtual dinner parties and in fact don't we all know people who are really important to us who our lives were scattered we live our, all over the world these days and but there's some people are really important to us and we haven't spoke to them for 10 years or more I've known some colleagues now who are saying hey I'm going to call so and so and have a little meeting through Zoom or Skype, and even maybe even have a little dinner party where you share your dinner together over a video a meeting. So, so yes, I think technology too, or reading those books that we've really been wanting to get to. And I've heard that Yale University, which has these what are called these great courses, I think they are making these great courses freely available to people now. So there's isn't a, that
1: wonderful? There's
2: a 20-hour course on, I think, like psychological happiness. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, in a way, we've known about this. There's an old cliched a phrase and then when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, right? Right. Um, and so I think in part, you know, this isn't new, but what I'm trying to convey here is rather than seeing life coming at you and, and here's a negative and, oh, this is bad and, oh, I don't like this and, oh, I want my life back. Another way you can look at it when we have these adjustive demands, these stressful situations, is what new things can come from this? How can this be a challenge which makes me more resilient, stronger, and more capable? So rather than seeing these adversities as something that are terrible, they're not pleasant, but rather than seeing them just as something awful, rather to see them that this gives me an opportunity to try things, to do things, to develop in ways that I might not have developed if this situation didn't come along.
1: You and I spoke at the very first podcast that I ever hosted on December 12, 2018. And in it, you talked about mindfulness putting yourself in a present state of awareness. And I know in the video that you did for Ollie, which is quite interesting, and I really encourage any of our listeners to please go to the Ollie website and watch that video. I'm sure they will all gain much, much from it. Could you talk to us about mindfulness and how that applies to what we're talking about right now?
2: To a large extent, you remember I talked about these different resilience strategies and social support, family cohesion, personal structure, but this personal competence domain of resilience, this is where mindfulness really fits in. And I've been giving an analogy to people. I don't know if it works, but would you go a day without brushing your teeth? And most of us would say, no. In fact, i like to brush my teeth more than once a day. And, <laughs> and that, Feeling of, you know, after you brush your teeth, those nice, clean, fresh teeth, is something I encourage people to begin with before I start talking about mindfulness, because what about our mind? What is our mind deserving? Is our mind deserving of a good and we're not gonna brush our mind, but is there a way that we can cleanse our mind too? And think about, it's hard to imagine actually, all the things our mind is doing. Our mind is constantly processing aspects of the world. When you put your clothes on, you originally feel your clothes on your skin. But over time, you stop feeling that. You you stop being consciously aware of that. But the thing is, is your mind is still processing that information. So our mind is incredibly active, you know, being aware of the environment, thinking about future plans, pulling on memories. And so mindfulness is an opportunity to bring to your mind a state of psychological quietness. It's a very peaceful, focused, concentrated type of activity. It can involve staring at a candle flame. It can involve focusing on your breathing. It can involve what's called compassion or loving meditation, imagining an individual and trying to try and bring up as much compassion and love as you can develop over the meditative period of time in being compassionate for a given individual. So there's a lot of different ways of quieting your mind. What the research is showing now is that it's this 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day of doing this mindfulness meditation, quieting your mind, it does some tremendous things in terms of our psychological well-being. Positive emotion increases If people will regularly practice mindfulness for, say, a two-week period of time, again, whatever they find comfortable, five minutes, ten minutes, each day, often just simply focusing on your breathing, you know, you count, just count your breaths or pay attention to your breathing. You don't even have to count. And what we find is if you do that regularly, there's a rise in positive emotion. Now, why that happens is because of our neurobiology. When we practice mindfulness meditation, there's an increase in activity in a part of our brain, the left prefrontal cortex, which is linked with positive emotion. So when we are practicing this mental quieting, we're allowing a part of our brain, the left prefrontal cortex to become more active. And what also happens during this time of mental quieting is the connections between brain areas actually start to strengthen. In particular, the prefrontal cortex is involved in being aware of and regulating another part of our brain, referred to as the limbic system, and the limbic system has to do with emotion. And so what happens during mindfulness meditation is these connections between the higher level part of our brain, the left prefrontal cortex, and this lower order part of our brain involved in emotion, it allows the connection between those brain areas to become stronger And what that means is that our ability to regulate our emotions becomes better. The scientific research is suggesting it's even more profound for our neurobiology is if we practice regular mindfulness meditation, it augments our immune system's functioning. I don't want to get into a long lecture here, but basically the way our immune system functions is when we need an immune response, we need an upregulation of that immune response. We got a wound, some white blood cells need to rush to that wound. We have some swelling in that area. That's an inflammatory response. And that's good because that means the white blood cells are going to the wound site. But long-term inflammation isn't good. The immune system needs to do its job take care of matters, but then that inflammation needs to be downregulated. Long-term inflammation isn't good. So our immune system has these pro-inflammatory activities, but we need to downregulate that inflammation. So our immune system also has anti-inflammatory. So they're similar to the stress and the immune system where there can be homeostasis that also exists within the immune system. And it turns out, As we practice mindfulness meditation more regularly, the cells of our body, the cellular signaling that's used for pro and anti-inflammatory immune responses gets better. It seems that mindfulness is something that nature has given us. It's really quite amazing. This has been known for thousands of years, meditation, but now it's only being really seriously studied in Western medicine. But it's something that allows us to quiet our mind, that quieting of our mind, strengthens how the different neural systems work together. And that results in an increased sense of positive emotion and an increased ability to regulate our emotional experiences And the biggest payoff, perhaps, is it increases our neurobiology, our ability to be more biologically resilient.
1: I find this so encouraging and so exciting, as I did when I talked to you in our last podcast, because it's not just, as you say, looking at the world with rose-colored glasses or pie in the sky. You're talking about an incredible body of scientific research, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. All of these studies are based on random controlled trials. So in the same way that we now are hoping to find a a vaccine to combat the coronavirus, in the same way that the pharmacological industry does randomized clinical trials to determine if a drug is safe for us, that same type of random clinical trial, the strongest scientific method we could use uh, is being done and is validating these positive changes in our human psychology and neurobiology.
1: That's just amazing to me to hear. Now, you talked about mindfulness meditation. What is that exactly?
2: We can think about mindfulness in terms of mindfulness meditation, a regular practice that we engage in, like regularly brushing our teeth, regularly meditating. And that builds up in a way, it builds up increased psychological and neurobiological resilience in, we can think of it like a trait-like fashion. It actually, our mind, right, is getting in a sense stronger, um, more resilient in the way it works. But we can also talk about mindfulness in a state-like type of phenomenon, and that is a moment-to-moment. And often it's, it's having wonderful deep meditation is all great and good, but often stressful situations, in part what makes them stressful, is something unexpected happens. We weren't planning on some things uh, and they catch us off guards. And it's at those times and those given moments where we can also practice mindfulness. And the key elements to mindfulness is being in that moment, observing what's going on inside of you. And the two most fundamental, important components of mindfulness is not being reactive and not judging It's a matter of observing and describing what's going on inside of you. And again, this isn't easy to do, to try not to be reactive, to try not to be judgmental. Now, let me do a little example. As I was doing more and more research on mindfulness, what happens is I get lost in my research. I lose track of time. And then all of a sudden I realize, oh, dear, I have to go teach a class in 15 minutes and thankfully, my lectures are prepared and ready to go. But I now have to get in the car and rush to campus, at least in the old days. So one time I'm rushing to campus and God love the students. But uh, when you get to around the top of the hour and they're getting out of class, they sort of slowly cross the street, you know, the corners and they're looking at their phone and they're taking their time. And I understand they just got out of a long class and they're chillaxing me. I get to the stop sign and I need to get through the cross section and they're delaying me. So I find myself getting more and more frustrated. Would you get your nose out of the phones? Would you please just cross the street and let me go? (laughs) That hostility, it sort of takes hold of us. And so I found myself then at that point, it was very fortuitous because I had been working on mindfulness and now I'm rushing to campus and now I'm feeling hostility. And I said, wait a minute, Craig, or in other words, doctor, heed your <laughs> own advice. Heal like thyself. Yeah, and I said, okay, there's hostility, there it is, I see it, I'm a little frustrated, but let's look at it, let's examine it. What color would it be? How big is it? is it? Is it affecting my stomach too, my muscles, am I clenched? So noticing the experience, and then try not to judge it, okay? I'm feeling a little frustrated, but don't judge it, good or bad. Don't try and be reactive to it. And so that moment-to-moment mindfulness can also be practiced and can be ideal for challenging situations that come upon us that are unexpected is, in a sense, psychologically stepping back from the situation and observing what's going on, not being reactive, not being judgmental. That moment-to-moment mindfulness can help us psychologically. And as you can imagine, that will also help to reduce the stress response. And that will also then minimize the biological load that is being placed upon us at that type of stressful situation.
1: With mindfulness and everyday activities, then you say a person becomes aware of what's around them, aware of what they're thinking, aware of how they're feeling, and just being aware of it, not really reacting to it, just experiencing it right what about the people who would say well i'm so angry how do i love you know what am i going to do about that i can't help what i'm thinking and all of that that's reacting to it right
2: Yes, it is. And I have students, when I try and teach my students, they say, oh, I can't do the mindfulness meditation because I keep having these thoughts. And I say, that's okay. That's what your mind does. Your mind's very busy. It's okay if you have some negative emotions. It's okay if you have some frightening thoughts. The key is, is trying not to react adversely and try not to judge. It's okay. Our feelings are what they are. They come naturally. And so being able to observe and describe, and in a sense, I don't know if it's a good way, but sort of taking a, a psychological step back and observing, observing those emotional experiences, observing those thoughts and letting them come and letting them go. And that very act at observing your inner experiences, what that's doing is the same thing in mindfulness meditation when you're in that moment. And you're engaging in that moment in a mindful way. What you're doing is you're also increasing activity of the left prefrontal cortex. And that observing of your inner experience and not judging and not reacting is also then helping you to downregulate your emotional experiences. So it's not that you're going to wipe these emotions out, but you're going to more adaptively, more psychologically sort of manage and downregulate the intensity to some extent of these internal experiences.
1: You mentioned mindfulness meditation, and in the video, you talked about five to 15 minutes a day increasing psychological well-being, and that a person might very possibly see a true difference in two weeks.
2: That's been my experience, and why I say in part two weeks, often the, the randomized clinical trials, they're done across eight weeks. But there's been some research now to suggest that just simply five sessions of mindfulness meditation might be enough to start to see changes in our neurobiology. These are imaging studies that are then imaging, are there changes in people's brain activity? I think for better or worse, this analogy about brushing the teeth, you know, the effect is fairly immediate. But one of the difficulties is as people try to try and engage in mindfulness meditation is often people will find it frustrating. They Now they start to notice their clothes a little bit more. Oh, it's, you know, this shirt's a little tight. Or, you know, they notice the sounds around them. They get a little unsettled that their mind isn't being quiet right away. And so you have to go at this with some patience that the mind is a very, very busy part of us. And it takes some regular practice to be able to get to these this sort of quieting of our mental internal experiences. But in my own experience, I don't know why at age 18, I uh, decided to, uh, I was in high school. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I'm the only person in my family that ever went to college. So I didn't even really know what college was. And for some reason, I, I took a course in transcendental meditation. And I think it's because I was a big fan of George Harrison. The Beatles were introducing the world to some Eastern philosophy. And what I found is, uh, I don't know what led me to do this. It's, it's strange. Sometimes I think that there's an intelligent universe that guides us. But I I just practiced the transcendental meditation, which is in this case, is just saying a mantra, saying a word quietly to yourself over and over. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I was just sort of doing it because I thought George Harrison was cool. But I kept doing it every day for two weeks. And after a two-week period, I had this incredible sense of well-being that came upon me. Now, when I was 18 years old, it was in the 70s. It was, it was a bit wild. All sorts of things were going on. And it was unsettling, a time in my life. I didn't know really where I was going to go what to do, getting close to graduating high school. But the two-week period of time profoundly changed me. And ever since then, at age 18, I've never stopped meditating. Now, one of the things that happens, especially if you become a professor, you get really, really busy. Um, It's a wonderful job, but there's always more to do in a day than you can do. And I found myself sometimes skipping meditations, but I came across this wonderful saying, And it goes like, if you say to yourself, oh, I'm too busy now to meditate, that's the exact time when you should be meditating. Mm -hmm. Because that mental quieting, it's building a more resilient brain. And when you are extremely busy, that's when you need a more resilient brain. So I encourage your listeners to give this a try. Seriously, give this a try and see what happens after a week to two weeks of just regular 10 minutes a day. I do 15 minutes. But regular practice, just trying to quiet their mind, there's a number of uh, phone apps out there, Headspace or Calm, that will provide uh, people with guided meditations. So there's a lot of different ways to try and achieve this this sense of mental quietness.
1: Well, I have been meditating also for years, and I've really found that the awareness and letting go in the meditation session has real benefits in doing that same thing in the activity of daily life that yes. being aware and letting go that you develop in a meditative session so i agree with you i i think it's really a wonderful practice and yes. I'll tell you one of the studies that you mentioned during the video. I I kind of had to do a head slap in that that they had actually injected the meditating research subjects with the influenza virus and found they had an increase in antibodies, yes. uh, and an increase in that left frontal cortex. But I thought, wow, those are <laughs> those are some really dedicated research subjects.
2: Yeah. And and that was a 2003 study. So definitely, as people practice, and this was the eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course that was developed by um, John Kabat-Zinn from Massachusetts Medical Center, developed it in the 70s to try and help people cope with pain. And since then, mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, has become one of the best ways To practice mindfulness. One thing I just wanted to add is often then the newer research that's being done that's showing there's an increase in immune system function. These studies are being done with individuals who have some serious medical conditions. And they're still finding for those people who have these serious medical conditions, they're getting medical treatment for the condition. But also, what they're seeing is these individuals who are meditating, their immune system is also working better. So Not only are these strong scientific studies, randomized clinical trials, but they're being done with individuals facing significant medical challenges, and we're finding that immune system functioning is improving.
1: Are there other practices that have also been found to yield similar psychological and biological results?
2: Sure. Uh, And I think you and I, Susan, have discussed a little bit about yoga. Yoga is another way of mentally quieting yourself. And I'm not talking about, you know, that crazy yoga where you have uh, standing on your head for 20 minutes (laughs) or twisting yourself into a pretzel, but just simply gentle sort of sitting on the floor in a comfortable position and stretching as far as seems comfortable. There's some wonderful yoga videos for people with maybe physical limitations or older adults or, and sitting and just a gentle, maybe twisting of your spine and what can be done with that type of yoga is putting yourself in that present moment and being fully aware of moving your body through these simple and hopefully relaxing yoga moves. And so that uh, is definitely something that taps very much into being mindful. For myself, I don't know if it's legitimate, but I've been a runner also all my life. And when I run, I it seems to me I get into a meditative state. The rhythm of the running, I can really lose myself, but I don't know if if that qualifies as mindfulness.
1: Well, before we sign off, can you give us some helpful starters for people who'd like to start to practice meditation?
2: Sure. As I had mentioned, for individuals, it, it might be that they find some type of software or phone app where the software guides you through meditation. They may find that helpful. One of the most interesting studies that I've come across is just simply breath counting. And again, you you set aside the time that you want to allow for the meditation, put yourself in a comfortable position. For some reason, I don't know why, I don't sit cross-legged on the ground when I meditate. I just simply sit in a chair. What's funny, when I originally went to learn transcendental meditation, I was a, a group of people, you know, 10 people or so. And in that process of instructing us, when I was being given my mantra, this was it was a younger couple, and the class instruction. They were placing individuals in their own home in sort of quiet places in their home. And for me, I was placed on the edge of their bed, sitting there. You know, my first time meditating ever. And so for me, I sit in a chair and meditate. And it actually it turns out to be really good. From it's comfortable, but also I can meditate in airplanes. I can meditate sitting on a on a park bench, and so. Find a comfortable position. It doesn't have to be sitting cross-legged on the floor. And what this research found was that just simply counting your breaths. And let's say you have a five-minute period of time, just counting your breaths up to 10 and then starting over and counting up to 10. And just focus either on the counting or on the breathing, right? One of those may, but just simply try and count your breaths. And what they found with this breath-counting approach was that, again, increase in left prefrontal activation and a rise in positive affect. There's a lot of different ways to to go about creating this mental quieting. It, it might be that you just simply do visual imagery where you are imagining a special place and, and walking, a, a, say, down a path through a forest. It might be hearing some beautiful chimes every minute, maybe ringing and focusing on the sound and the vibrations of those chimes. Any sort of method that can help to sort of focus your attention and bring about the mental quieting is a suitable way of going about it. Often, besides mindfulness meditation, is practice being mindfulness in a moment to moment. And so pick a couple activities, whether it's making your coffee in the morning, something you do regularly, and engage in that moment with as much of a present focus as you can. And I would also encourage folks, if you have to go out, for example, you have to go to the supermarket or you have to take your dog to the groom and you find yourself getting agitated and uncomfortable, that's a perfect time to practice being mindful in that moment. So give it a try.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Newman. This has been timely, interesting, and I'm sure a helpful interview for very many people.
2: Good. I hope it was helpful.
1: Certainly was. Thank you. This has been Susan Supak speaking with distinguished researcher and professor of psychology, Dr. Craig Newman at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Thanks for listening.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu podcast, or by searching for the OLLI at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.